This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. That's where I see the VC-backed care models fall off. Sometimes is actually because there's not enough clinical input. It's more about the bottom line than it is about the clinical input along the way. And that's where I think health systems could differentiate themselves even more than some of these VC or PE-backed care models in primary care, because I do think that they take the physician input and care team input into consideration when they're designing all of these things. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I am your host, Trevor Durin. I have my colleague, Cassie Rattler, with me, and we are going to share with all of you what we very frequently talk about when it's just the two of us, which is primary care today, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what data we're tracking, and what we think is going to change about primary care in the near and long-term future. Cassie, thank you so much for joining me to share one of our frequent topics of conversation with everyone else. What do you think is changing the most about primary care. Why is it something that we end up talking about all the time? The biggest shifts have been around technology and then the new entrance into primary care and the care models that they're designing. I feel like the idea that we're going to utilize big data and manage populations differently and support decisions in the clinical setting has been around for a while. But with the advancements in artificial intelligence and generative AI, machine learning that became more prevalent, more common in the colloquial this summer, that could actually have a substantial impact on primary care and who delivers it. And you're starting to see hints of that with the new entrance. We were emailing a couple months ago, me, you, and a few of our colleagues about Forward, that primary care company that's going to have pods that have an AI-generated PCP talking to you in the airport, I guess, is where they're planning on putting most of their pods. So it's things like that. Technology is changing really quickly, and there's a lot of capabilities that the physician used to be required to deliver. You used to have to go into an office to get those, and now with capabilities to test at home and just the way that we can analyze data, there's going to be a lot of changes in the way primary care looks going forward. No surprise, you're more future focused than me. The reason I feel like we're talking about it is we've already seen changes in our claims data around who's showing up in traditional primary care settings and what they're asking for from those traditional providers and what consumers are expecting from primary care. We've seen a really quick shift in terms of the really low acuity transactional visits shifting away from traditional in-clinic providers, even bunny hopping past urgent care. There's also just a big push within employer-sponsored benefits to say, are there more tailored ways that we can get the populations that we see as having big impact and big drivers of our total healthcare spend, different types of care, because the one-size-fits-all primary care that's from the insurer perspective within a network or from a health system perspective, showing up in the clinic and doing your annual wellness visit isn't working. It's not effectively managing these patients. We've already seen consumers make a shift. I'm not sure consumers realize how many more primary care choices they have today than they had just five years ago. That's something I'm paying attention to. When is it going to feel like all of a sudden consumers feel empowered to say, oh, yeah, like we do have so many more options and they feel like they know how differentiated the options are. We're the most educated, whatever, five, two percent on this topic. And I still use traditional primary care or at least somewhat traditional. I use virtual visits for some stuff for the kids. But when is the general consumer population going to feel like they can really know and differentiate? Ooh, I see how one medical is embedded with Amazon and I'm going to use it for X, Y, Z reason. To put your question back on you, you do spend a lot of time looking at the claim 
claims and our analytics. I would just offer, we're not necessarily in the target group yet for some of those new care models. It's been a lot of Medicare Advantage focus. And I think it'll get around to us, but we're just not spending. And by we, I especially mean me. I think you probably spend more on healthcare just because you have a family and I don't have any kids. Because I'm older than you, Cassie. No, but we're kind of in that millennial category where we're not spending money. But I think that eventually we would be the target consumers as these models continue to evolve and scale. And in some markets, they already are scaled. I hear from some of our rural clients, you probably get this too. People don't want virtual yet. People don't want this or that. Those folks are going to be at the end of the adoption curve, but we're already in it. It maybe just isn't evenly distributed across all consumers, all payer types and all markets yet. With that in mind, how do you think different stakeholders are looking at primary care today and thinking about how they're trying to influence the way it's changing? We see insurers, the big ones, all own or partner with some new primary care model. Humana is the most focused. It's all about their MA population. Employers, the education curve or the learning curve of how benefits are designed and what options are going to be there. We both predicted, hey, I'll pat it on the back here. We thought Amazon was going to get into the employer game and they probably did it faster than we expected. That becoming an option is going to force benefits managers to get better educated about why wouldn't I just use United's network? Why would I have these other kind of add-ons and plugins around it? So I think employers are going to be a group that's expecting more tailored offerings that can show results that matter to them, which face it, that's going to be all about cost. Consumers are still learning the options. How do you see different stakeholders influencing the way primary care is changing? I would start with doubling down the employers and thinking through, okay, incumbent providers, it depends on who we're talking to because some of the incumbent providers are focused on value-based care. And with that, they've built out their analytics capabilities where they can demonstrate clearly through data how they manage a population, how they keep costs within reason, how they have solid quality. And then that's something that they could parlay into a negotiation with an employer. You see so many incumbent providers struggling to have those conversations with employers because for some reason they say, oh, I want to do a direct to employer contract, but I don't want to do value-based care. And it's like, well, you have to have the same capabilities for both. It's just that the exact contract language might be different, but it's ultimately keeping people out of your acute care centers unless they really need that care. And then you being the trusted source that provides high quality at a reasonable cost. That's the conversation that so many health systems want to be having. The one that Amazon's having, but they're just not all there yet because they haven't been able to make the right investments. We had that small distraction of the pandemic going on the last few years, the financial situations. I don't necessarily blame health systems for not being able to focus on building out those capabilities, the analytics and pop health care management options for patients, but it's just something that they're going to need to think about. And for every member we talk to that's engaged and interested in it, there's the next one that feels like they're allergic to the value-based care term. What I think is going to force the issue of primary care and what to do about primary care is within the incumbent providers and the providers themselves because the subsidy is hitting, I think, kind of a breaking point because if you look at health systems, our colleagues at Kauffman Hall are showing still like 2%, I think is the most recent hospital margin data that came out. Plus 2% is still nothing close to what people were used to like in 2019 and prior. Now, every time that we are subsidizing a primary care physician, then that cost 
cost is having to get looked at with a more microscopic view instead of saying, okay, well, this is just part of our broader referral funnel plan. Because of that, and just the constraints and pressures that get put on the primary care physician, like the actual provider themselves, we're at a point where like something's going to shift with alignment and with who wants to be independent, how they're going to engage with one another, both as like the employer and the employee physician health system relationship. Those are some other stakeholders that you didn't mention, but I think are also at a point of change. We're at a pivotal moment where we might be hitting a turning point with that relationship and that dynamic. I want to pull on that thread more because it's probably the number one thing I'm going to pay attention to because it's going to be the number one barometer of what the pace of change in primary care is going to be. I kind of thought in 2023, we might see a couple leading edge systems say, we think the differential in what we're going to save by not employing primary care and how much we may lose in downstream volume is either going to balance out or we can create enough alignment mechanisms that actually will come out ahead that we're not going to employ primary care anymore. You can tell me if you saw something that I didn't see a big health system with a big employed primary care group do that yet. We might have made this prediction last year, so it's a little less impactful to do it two years in a row, but I would not be surprised at all if someone did that in 2024 and said, you know what, we have all these internal hurdles that we've created through employment and we haven't invested in really being good at alignment and we only get 70 or 80% of their downstream anyway. We can probably maintain that or maybe do a little bit better by allowing them to be independent, but building a really strong alignment vehicle. And that's probably through some level of value-based care incentives. So that's the number one thing I'm going to keep an eye on to see. Maybe no one's going to do it that dramatically. Maybe it'll be a smaller piece that they spin off of more entrepreneurial docs that want to try a different model. But if health systems start doing that, I think the dominoes will start to fall quick. What are you keeping an eye on as you're really good at? What are all the signals? And then what are the ones that really matter? What are a couple that you're paying attention to that you think really matter? I have two. But the first one is that along the same lines as what you're talking about with the movement away maybe from employed and, oh, is that really what's going to happen? We don't know. It already is happening for the systems that are building out statewide CINs and or have MSOs where they're basically using that to work with independence. I don't necessarily think like it's going to take the form of, oh, we're laying off our employed primary care group or we're spinning them out into a different entity altogether. Although I I think that could happen in 2024 where you see spinoffs happen because they just can't afford it. And maybe they can work with private equity or something else to keep working with those same docs, but just have it structured differently. I'm really not sure. I don't think anybody would do that if they didn't have like a solid backup alignment lined up. So I feel like that's what those CINs are working with the independent physicians to see what juice they can squeeze out of just having those aligned providers versus the employed. And I worked for two health systems that had mostly employed providers, but then we did have aligned providers as well with an ACOs. And we have tools at SG2 to help our members think through this. But I don't necessarily know that in all cases, employment means referrals going to your entity. Employment means physicians are all lined up doing their documentation and their quality steps and everything else like exactly perfectly. There's been successes with not being fully on the hook for the salaries while still being able to drive some of the behaviors and using incentives. Otherwise, with physicians, those steps are starting it's just going to take a while for it to come to fruition. 
You're right, though. It's probably not going to be a big Band-Aid. It'll be more like they're pushing alternatives rather than bringing in new employed providers. Yeah, because also there's turnover that they could just never fill. Or we know there's never enough primary care providers. There's just never enough. You see some care model designs like, oh, we're going to use APPs now at this site. So for every doc that leaves, we fill it with two nurse practitioners. The other trend that's a little more future focused that I'm constantly watching and working, trying to keep my ear to the ground with our service line SMEs that work with us is really around like home diagnostics and what can be done in the home. Because we talk a lot about hospital at home, but there's a lot of space for primary care at home. And some things that people are just going into the doctor's office because they need to get their strep test. Well, we just did COVID tests on ourselves for the last three years. We can figure it out. And people are getting more comfortable with pricking their own finger. People have their glucose monitoring devices that they're just doing for wellness purposes. So folks are getting comfortable with doing that stuff at home. So at what point is it that we just don't go in for certain things anymore? Part of the bottleneck to that is going to be technology. Part of that's going to be adoption. Who's the PCP that's going to result those tests? How does that work? There's a lot to figure out still, but I feel like there's a lot of startups and investors that are going to be kind of like pushing things in that direction. Because we don't run a health system, we get to do fun hypotheticals like this. If you're building primary care from scratch for a big regional health system, what would you do? What would be on the table? How would you be thinking about what you wanted your primary care footprint to look like? And how much different is that probably going to look than just about what anyone else has today? One of the biggest challenges is all the incumbent systems, processes, and expectations that make even incremental change really tough in primary care. So how would you rebuild it if you got to start from scratch? That's a fun question, Trevor. I take a little bit of my cues from working for a VC-backed startup because we were designing care from the ground up there. It was for mental health and for children. You can take a lot of the plays from the VC world because they are starting from scratch. And I feel like if our health systems could do that, they would be looking at the consumer first and saying, who's the ideal patient that we want to serve? And then what would best serve that patient? And make sure that the technology, the provider, meaning the physician or the APP, and then also the entire care team makes sense for what you're trying to deliver to the consumer. Way back in the day when I was a primary care clinic manager, the issues were more around dealing with breakdowns in the system, breakdowns in the processes and breakdowns in the payment models and the schedule and all of that. A lot of that could be corrected if we just started with the patient at the center and designed the system around the patient. But the problem would always come into play of how we're getting paid and who gets paid for what. That's going to be where the friction comes in. If I'm part of a health system that includes understanding how to create a frictionless process from getting the patient from primary care to other levels of care, which seems so rote, it seems so basic blocking and tackling. It's not strategic really. But despite that, most health systems don't have that figured out. And if they did, they would probably be a lot better off. I don't have a solution per se, just to say that if we're starting starting from the consumer and building out from there, things get a lot easier. So in that world, I see really segmented approaches and health systems are doing pieces of it really well, right? Some are doing senior clinics, some are doing disease-specific programs. But the pushback I always hear is it's really tough for providers to know that there's different options, different solutions, different care available, different resources for different patients at different populations. Unless you have it so segmented that everyone who walks through the front door of this clinic is in this same segment. Do you think you could recruit enough providers to a health system that 
really focused on, we're going to have super tailored care for whatever the number of segments is. And so your day as a provider is going to look more similar and you have to pick which patient population or care segment or type of care you want your work to look like. Some of what we've heard is it's great to have those as an alternative option, but I wonder if you could make your reputation as, well, we're the health system where you have to pick and you're a specialist within primary care. Do you think that would work or do you think it would get too much provider pushback? I think it would work if the care models were being designed with the physicians. That's what makes service lines just successful in general is you have your administrative role working right in tandem with the clinical role. And that's where I see the VC-backed care models fall off sometimes is actually because there's not enough clinical input. It's more about the bottom line than it is about the clinical input along the way. And that's where I think health systems could differentiate themselves even more than some of these VC or PE-backed care models in primary care, because I do think that they take the physician input and care team input into consideration when they're designing all of these things. Also, I mean, just from the firsthand experience of hearing exactly what you're hearing from members, I hear that from members at you too. And then also just from hearing it from physicians when I'm their practice manager years ago, it's always coming down to more about the reason why they want to see the strep test is because they're so burnt out from the five seriously mentally ill or multiple comorbidities patients that came before them. And they just want that as a reprieve and a mental slowdown. But if they were seeing fewer patients, if they had the right care team, if they had the EMR wasn't constantly broken, whatever, the fire that they're putting out that day, they would feel more confident in just working with a subgroup of patients. At least the way that the system is now, I don't think that people graduating from medical school today would expect that I'm graduating as a family practice provider, but I'm only going to see 65 and over. Most of them aren't feeling like that. They want to see the variety and all of that. So I think we'll have to figure out ways to solve for it, but still segmenting around populations and how we're delivering their care. Yeah, I think that's right. Right now at SG2, we're in the thick of building our next forecast. What do you think the primary care landscape is going to look like in five or 10 years? Are we just going to see a slow drip and maybe it's going to look pretty similar with a few changes on the boundaries? Or do you think it's going to look different? 50% or less of the traditional office visits are going to be delivered in a traditional clinic model. That's what I think. But they'll be delivered in all different other kinds of ways, whether that's on an app and it's just asynchronous care and it's being delivered digitally, whether it's home, whether it's in a unique care model, whether it's in some kind of value-based care arrangement, not just a fee-for-service I'm paying my copay and showing up and my insurance covers the rest. I just don't see more than half the care being in that old world model. The part where the crystal ball is getting a little hazy for me looking ahead is who is going to pay for this and how are the payment models going to evolve? Because we're kind of tired of hearing, oh, value-based care is coming. Everybody who's been working in healthcare longer than me always rolls their eyes. You had your Affordable Care Act edition. You had your Clinton era edition. This is a cyclical thing that just keeps happening. And that's what everybody older than me always says. I don't know. I just am really thinking that something's different now because of the amount of investors and non-traditional entrants getting involved. And they're trying to figure out a way to keep people out of the hospital because that's what they're incentivized to do. So I just feel like that juggernaut of people pushing that direction cannot be ignored, but I can't say what that payment mechanism is going to exactly look like. There's so many moving pieces and parts. I just don't think it will look the same as it does now. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I think the payment mechanism piece, it almost feels like the biggest change is going to be those who just go around it. And it's through an insurer that says, yeah, it's asynchronous care, but you can text message this number anytime and it'll give you an answer on something related. And it's United's way of saying, geez, is that worth it if we can keep 2% of those people out of going to the ED or urgent care? Because we can answer their question and get them something over the counter. Those pieces exist, but how much are they pushed and how much are they utilized by consumers? I think consumers are always, at least in the last five or 10 years, constantly working out their individual puzzle of how to combine the pieces between services you pay out of pocket and what's being pushed by insurer and then what's available through traditional means. So consumers are going to continue building that roadmap. I'm in total agreement with you. They're going to settle less and less on traditional clinic visits, whether that's because the traditional players have created an alternative with an alternative payment model that just looks and feels different, or if it's through someone totally new. So always fun to talk to you about this stuff. Thanks for sharing your opinions and perspective. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks, Trevor. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.